Welcome back to another episode of MPMA's Bug Bites, a nerdy news podcast where three entomologists with the National Pest Management Association compete to see who can do the best job at covering a recent science discovery or news headline. I'm Mike Bentley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dr. Jim Fredericks and Dr. Brittany Campbell. Our, our special guest joining us for this episode is Nicholas Holland with Peregrine General Pest Control, joining us all the way from Alberta, Canada. First off, Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. Really, really appreciate you making the time to uh, to, to join us here on this episode. Before we get started, uh, give us a little bit of a rundown about who you are, where your company is actually located in Canada, and a little bit of your history in pest control, how you got into the industry. Sure, uh, Mike, uh, it's uh, fantastic to, uh, to come to uh, Bug Bites. Um, you know, I've listened to a couple of episodes and I'm terrified for what is going to happen today, but I'm laugh along the way. We are terrified too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So I guess a bit of background, I guess uh, Peregrine is located in uh, Calgary, uh, Alberta, uh, in Canada, of course. Uh, I fell into pest control around 25 years ago. So as a not-so-typical immigrant uh, to Canada from Australia, if you can't hear the accent, uh, you know, I did a couple of uh, minor other jobs before uh, a fellow beaver leader said, hey, Nick, do you want to come and do bugs? And I'm like, what? And he asked me again six months later, and I said, okay. And as I have the type of personality to never stop talking, I'm outgoing, uh, it is definitely right up my alley. Uh, and so don't ask me where 25 years has gone, but I've got gray hair now. <laughs> now, in addition to all that, Nicholas, you are also the current president of the Canadian Pest Management Association, right? So you tend to stay pretty busy. I'm a busy guy. Uh, look, I volunteer uh, a lot in life, uh, both obviously in our industry. You know, it's, it's my goal to help uh, our industry be as professional as it can be. Uh, and I do that by giving up my time. So, yes, uh, obviously the current president of the Canadian Pest Management Association. I am twice uh, past president of the Pest Management Association of Alberta. And I currently sit on the board for Quality Pro, uh, which I've been a member for five years. Plus or minus. <laughs> that's that's amazing. And in addition, you know, so much heavy involvement as well with the National Pest Management Association. You know, can't can't thank you enough for all of your time. I know just in uh, my personal dealings with Nicholas, always available and uh, pretty incredible just how much you do. Um, not only nationally for the Canadian Pest Management Association, but your involvement at the provincial level as well. Um, certainly see that in your leadership with all the, the current presidents of the, the uh, provincial association. So really appreciate everything that you do. Thanks for the kind words. Well, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about what the run of show was going to look like. And uh, luckily, nobody out there can see the pit stains that I've got right now because i am got a little bit of nervous sweating going on because every single episode that we do are... Uh, our guest judges, I feel like they bring a little bit more heat to the fire. And Nicholas is already, I, it looks like he pulled out an evaluation form for us before we got started. So a little bit nervous about what you have in store for us, Nicholas, but just to make sure that uh, everybody's up to speed on what's about to happen. Um, what we're going to do is um, each one of us is going to take about five minutes to summarize our favorite science news discovery or science news article from about the past month. 
Um, and you will let us know at the very end who the winner of the contest was. We don't need to know who second and third place was. We would prefer to only know who the winner was. The way that we typically do this is uh, the winner from the last episode goes first. And uh, since I'm the reigning nerd champion, I will be going first today. So, Nicholas, if you've just heard enough after I finished and you want to call it quits there and crown me back-to-back champion, that's totally fine. We can shorten the episode and uh, everybody can get a little bit of time back in their day. If you do decide that you want to hear the other two, which is totally fine, um, Brittany will be going second and then Jim will be going third. They had a very competitive game of rock, paper, scissors before our episode started and, uh, Brittany crushed Jim as per usual. So, um, so, you know, you're talking about a scorecard and, you know, I'm competitive, not like in the Calgary Flames sort of competitive. (laughs) They suck. But did I say they suck? Uh, yeah, Calgary. (laughs) Suck. And so anyway, so you won back to back. That's awesome. So who's the overall, you know, leading the scoreboard? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question, Nick. I know it's not me. <laughs> I can tell you that. I think it's probably Brittany. Yeah. That's, that's awesome, of course. But, you know, that's sort of fails of my next question, I guess, is I was going to say, Brittany, what are you going to do to uh, pick up the game, lift your game to knock off Michael? Oh, man. Like, this is putting a lot of pressure on me. And typically, I really have to pick up my game to beat Michael. So I'm not entirely concerned. I think everyone's given him pity points. So uh, I, I, uh, I should be able to easily win this back. Why, why are people giving me pity points? <laughs> I, have a suggestion. I have a suggestion. So the loser of today or the two losers of today should have to have a tablespoon of Vegemite with me at Pest World when we're all in person, uh, you know, and uh, it can be video recorded, you know, put on social media. Your facial expressions will be priceless. So who's up for the bet? I oh, think God. that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I don't know what veggie bite is. Not veggie bites. It's, it's veggie bites. First off, what? Judging by Brittany's accent, you'd have to assume that she's probably never even heard of, lest have tried veggie mite. Mite. <laughs> Nicholas, you want to you want to give Brittany a quick rundown of what veggie mite is? Well, veggie mite, you know, is an Australian staple, and uh, it's made from leftover beer. What else would you use leftover beer for? It has a ridiculous amount of salt in it. And if you think of like beef booster, just think of it like times 20 in that sort of strong flavour. And for some bizarre reason in Australia, growing up, margarine, Vegemite, melted cheese, perfect. Mm. Oh, that sounds good. You know, uh, Nicholas, I have to say before the show started, we were uh, discussing some, you know, you know, how to, how to make the show. We always have like a little pre pre-show meeting and we were talking, I said, I said, we ought to have some men at work here, like as an intro music for Nicholas. And Mike reminded me that we didn't have the budget for the, for the royalty (laughs) rights for that song. Uh, But it, but it reminds me of the, when they refer to the Vegemite sandwich. So um, I, I'm all for this bet. I think it'd be a, I think it'd be a great way to introduce Brittany and Mike to Vegemite. Right, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's been a quiet taste, just to let you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely down for it. I think it sounds great. 
It's on. I like a good competition. And Jim already is confident he will not be eating it. So particularly want to watch Jim eat this at Pest World. All right. Oh, yeah. All right, everybody. Well, we ready to get started? Let's do it. Okay. So my paper today was published in December 2021 in the Journal of Economic Entomology by a team of researchers that includes Dr. David Oy, who, fun side note, uh, happened to have also served on my PhD committee. So the title of my paper is The Effective Irrigation on the Control of Red Imported Fire Ants, Hymenoptera formicidae, by Water Resistant and Standard Fire Ant Baits. When it comes to invasive ants, few species have more global recognition and do more damage than the red imported fire ant, Solenopsis invicta. This species checks off all of the problem boxes for invasive ants. It's aggressive, it can reproduce quickly, spread easily, and it can even cause serious medical health problems um, for folks that uh, may be allergic because it packs a very painful sting. The red imported fire ant's ability to spread rapidly makes this a difficult invasive ant to contain and control, which is why the development of fire ant baits represented such a major milestone in advancing our attempts to stop the spread of this damaging invader. Fire ant specific baits typically consist of a toxicant combined with a food attractant, usually soybean oil, that are both then applied to corn grit to act as a carrier. One notable drawback to this formulation, however, is that corn grit is highly absorbent by design, and if exposed to moisture, it would quickly absorb water, which reduces its palatability and effectiveness. That would mean that any applications made to rainy climates or heavily irrigated areas such as plant nurseries and golf courses could potentially be compromised. To address this issue, researchers have been working to improve stability and palatability of these fire ant baits in a few different ways. First, by either replacing the corn grit carrier altogether with a less absorbent product called dry distillers grain soluble, also abbreviated to DDGS, or by treating the corn grit with a water repellent corn protein called zine. The study that I'm covering on this episode looked at how the effectiveness of these new baits were after being exposed to moisture when compared to traditional fire ant baits. They addressed this question by measuring survivorship of fire ant colonies first in a series of laboratory experiments, and then they followed up with a field study. In the first laboratory study, lab-reared fire ant colonies were given one of three bait options in dry containers to measure just the effects of moisture on bait performance, and colony uh, survivability was measured. Those three baits were that DDGS, which is that water-resistant carrier I mentioned, a zine-coated corn grit, which is the corn grit with the uh, water-repellent protein applied, or a standard traditional corn grit bait. To test different levels of moisture, the researchers exposed all three baits to one of three different moisture types. They either soaked it in water for 30 minutes, then used it, they soaked it in water for 30 minutes, let it dry overnight and used it, or they just simply left it dry. In the second lab study, researchers gave fire ant colonies access to the same three bait options, but this time the baits were broadcast applied onto plots of sod that were either irrigated or left dry, and then colony survivorship was measured. And then in the final laboratory study, researchers ran a follow-up study that was nearly identical to the previous sod study. But this time, they either applied the bait treatment in piles, which was believed to potentially withstand the, the negative effects of irrigation, which would potentially wash the granules away, or they repeated the application as a, as a broadcast. The last study was conducted in the field where researchers measured the performance of these three bait options 
in the field by applying the baits in three regularly irrigated field sites, a golf course, grass outside of a restaurant, and grass outside of a shopping mall, then they counted forager mortality over four weeks. Here's what they found. In the initial laboratory studies, fire ant colonies that fed on dry baits recorded greater colony mortality than those fed on all pre-soaked or wetted baits. Not necessarily a surprise. But when the researchers compared just the effects of applying the baits in piles versus broadcast baits, what they found was that both application methods resulted in over 88% colony mortality. This was a bit of a surprise given the assumption that piling the baits would combat any potential negative effects that would have been seen as a result of irrigation, potentially washing those granules away um, or making the granules harder for the ants to find. When the authors analyzed the colony mortality data from their field study, what they found was that both the new water resistant and the traditional standard baits caused similar and significantly higher reductions in foraging activity in irrigated sites when compared to control sites. Basically, these results suggest that irrigation did not compromise the bait applications and that both the new water resistant and the standard fire ant baits provide significant colony reductions in the presence of irrigation. The study is really exciting from an entomological and a PNP perspective, but it raises some interesting questions. Seeing the direction that we're heading with ant bait research is pretty exciting, and one of the biggest obstacles to overcome has always been with baits that improving the uh, environmental stability and long-term palatability. Seeing what we're on the heels of uh, this breakthrough is phenomenal, and although the study only focused on fire ant baits, this research could potentially open doors for advances in bait stability for other ant species. And although this study may have shown us that we're still a ways to go in addressing moisture impacts on palatability, given that dry baits outperform wet baits in those laboratory studies, this study still demonstrates something exciting. All bait formulations in the field study provided significant fire ant control despite being applied in the presence of irrigation. These findings could suggest that even traditional fire ant treatments may withstand high humidity and sprinkler irrigation sites better than previously assumed, giving PMPs more flexibility in the timing of their bait applications. Way to go, Mike. 545. Uh, now I got 523. You must have started the timer before I read my, finished my title. Go back and Nicholas, check the, the timer does not start until the title has been read, not not my go, my introduction go, of the paper. Go back and check the tape. 45 seconds. What's <laughs> that? Because the title took 45 seconds. <laughs> and that's why we don't start the timer until after. I hit the play button right after that, 523. We'll check the tape later. We'll check the tape later. I think it's worth noting that we should amend the, the, the game bylaws to include uh, that you can't speak for like two or three minutes and include your introductory paragraph before you mention the title. <laughs> hey, sorry, man, that uh, I found a way to, you know, circumvent the rules a little game bit. The system. That's I'm right. I'm going to say I'm my title after I'm done. <laughs> All right. Nicely done, Mike. Thanks. Nicholas, you got any questions, buddy? I don't. It was uh, very complicated. Sounds very reasonable to me, uh, Michael. But uh, I guess we'll have to see, you know, you know, Brittany and uh, Jim's, uh, you know, story as well, I guess, right? Sa sounds like I've lowered the bar to a comfortable level that both Brittany and Jim can easily step over on their way to claiming victory for today. So, Brittany, we'll turn it over to you. I like it. Uh I like that Nicholas thinks that you're, you're complicated here. So it's a good start. Right, let me pull up my paper. Get your timers ready so we can argue about that here in a few minutes. 
Okay, title of my paper is Vector Specificity of Arbovirus Transmission. Now, this is a review article, so no, uh, it's not a specific research study. Essentially, what researchers did is they reviewed kind of all of the studies looking at the specific topic. So it's like a big picture overview of a specific topic. These are receipts, uh, researchers from France, and this was published in December 2021 in Frontiers of Microbiology. Now, I'm going to start off reading two sentences of this paper. More than 25% of human infection diseases are vector-borne diseases. Let me repeat that. 25% of disease that we get are caused by a vector, so one out of four diseases. I'm already derailing, so sentence two. These diseases caused by pathogens shared between animals and humans are a growing threat to global health with more than 2.5 million annual deaths. So to put that in perspective, if you look at the COVID numbers, uh, COVID is estimated to cause 5 million global deaths in 2020. Obviously, terrible pandemic, uh, but half of those numbers, uh, you know, comparatively, 2.5 million annual deaths from uh, insects and arthropods that transmit disease. So the two main disease car carriers and transmitters are mosquitoes and ticks. And these numbers are really staggering. If you think about it, they highlight the threat of many of the pests that we control as pest control operators. But alternatively, a question that I get all the time is why can't an insect transmit X, Y, and Z disease? If bed bugs suck blood like mosquitoes, why don't they transmit disease? And why don't insects transmit COVID? These are just some of the general questions I get about around insects and their pods spreading disease. And honestly, it's a super complicated question with a very convoluted answer. But this paper did a great job kind of breaking down big picture why some insects can successfully transmit disease while others cannot. Uh, so there are 1 million insects on Earth and there's only a tiny percentage of that actually can transmit disease. Even the main transmitters like mosquitoes and ticks have a few representative species and genera that do all of the damage. So what are the characteristics that actually make these species so lethal? Honestly, it's a combination of many factors, including the insect's immune response, genetics, nutrition, temperature, habitat. Uh, the first mixture to success is to be sure that first, you have a lot of insects that are capable of transmitting the disease in an area that the insect or arthropod in question can actually pick up the disease agent and not die themselves. And the arthropod in question has to have interactions with a host in order to spread disease. So is there a host in their area that they can actually transmit a disease to? All of these factors are called the vectoral capacity, which basically means how efficient an arthropod can spread disease naturally. It's not allowed naturally how well are insects able to do this. The arthropod has to be able to actually get the pathogen, have the pathogen replicate inside of a state without causing the insect harm, and then successfully transmit the disease. The first problem this paper finds that all some vectors can bite the same hosts, only a few species are able to actually become infected by the disease and then transmit the virus to another host. Arthropods actually have a variety of immune responses, just like we do. Our immune system fights off diseases, and many pathogens are blocked before they reach a cell to replicate, and they never actually even make it. The disease never to the insect's saliva glands to replicate and be transmitted during a bite. 
Additionally, when you think of mosquitoes and ticks, it's interesting that they spread different diseases and they are very species specific or age genera specific. In mosquitoes, the fact that they have a larval stage in a completely different habitat limits their ability sometimes to transmit certain diseases. Tick biology may actually be the reason why they're less suitable vectors than mosquitoes because of their blood feeding behavior, digestion, molting. Mosquitoes are typically way more exposed to humans, obviously, uh, take more blood meals from different hosts where a tick may stay on a host for a really extended period of time. Uh, so those biological factors are also really important when we think about disease transmission. There are many factors required for an insect to successfully transmit a pathogen, and thankfully, it's a super complicated process that limits most arthropods from successful disease transmission. In short, many insects can't transmit pathogens because first, they're never exposed to a pathogen uh, just based on where they live. They don't interact with hosts. Uh, they don't actually blood feed or not able to mechanically pick something up. They can't fight off the pathogen if they do pick something up. The virus, if it actually gets inside the insect body, doesn't replicate inside their bodies. And lastly, they're not capable of spreading the disease to a host. And uh, fortunately, the majority of pathogens in human blood are actually not transmitted by arthropod vectors. And we're lucky because the few that are have a very large impact on our health. Nice. <clears throat> Another one over five minutes. I know. I almost worried it today. Nicholas, too. we're just giving you the long, heavy descriptions today, man. Whew. Oh, this is like, oh. like it hurts my head thinking about all this. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. I don't want to be the guy that stands between you and your lunch since it's 1130 in the morning where you are, so... Um, I'll try to keep mine quick and not go over like these other two rule breakers. Okay. All right. Sounds good, Jim. But just remember there's plenty of Vegemite for lunch. Just saying. <laughs> oh. All right. Here we go. So the title of my paper is first report of the bat tick Karyos kellii from Vermont, United States. This, this paper was published last week in the Journal of Medical Entomology and was written by Cheryl Frank Sullivan and her colleagues at the Entomological Entomology Research Laboratory at the University of Vermont and some others at both Rutgers University as well as the Smithsonian uh, here in D.C. I chose this paper um, because our team of entomologists here, Mike, Brittany, and I uh, recently had a run-in with soft ticks, which are the subject of the paper. And coincidentally, Burlington, Vermont, where University of Vermont is located, is one of my favorite cities in New England. So those are the two reasons I chose this. Now, when PMPs typically think of ticks, they think of hard ticks in the family Ixodidae. Uh, and these are things like black-legged ticks, lone star ticks, American dog ticks, um, and others that transmit pathogens that cause diseases like Lyme disease and ehrlichiosis and babesiosis and other tick-borne illnesses. Now, soft ticks or ticks in the family uh, are gasidae are also capable of transmitting pathogens of human disease and can spread nasty things like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which is something we often think of for, um, for hard ticks, but also African relapsing fever, Central Asian relapsing fever, Persian relapsing fever, as well as a number of other viruses that still have not been determined um, what level of pathogenicity they have to humans. Um, but like I said, 
people don't typically encounter soft ticks because they usually live in the nests or the roosts of their host. Um, they're usually more habitat specific and less host specific than hard ticks. Um, but they can sometimes become pests of structures when they are infesting the nests of rodents and birds or the roosts of bats. So the species of interest in this particular paper is Karyos kellii, which is also known as the bat tick. It is, um, as its name would suggest, it commonly feeds on bats, uh, spending most of its time in the roosts and only feeding on the bat itself for just like a few minutes to a few hours at a time. After it feeds, it leaves the bat and then hides in cracks and crevices in the roost, and it's able to survive for long periods of time between blood meals. Um, this life history uh, sounds a lot like a bed bug or a bat bug. Um, the big brown bat is actually its preferred host, but it's been collected from little brown bats, which are the most common species found in structures, as well as um, at least 20 other bats, as well as dogs and humans. Now, feeding on humans usually occurs when bats are evicted from a structure and the ticks begin seeking an alternative host. Now, the authors for this paper positively identified the very first record of the bat tick in Vermont using both morphological characteristics as well as molecular techniques. Um, the tick is and has been known in New York, but in no other adjoining state to Vermont. Um, but that is most likely not due to the fact that it's rare, but rather that very few people have really just gone out and checked these bat roosts for the bat tick. Um, the tick is widely distributed, though, throughout um, uh, all throughout North and Central America, uh, including records from now with this paper, 32 U.S. states, as well as Canada. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our team recently had a member company send some specimens. Oftentimes, member companies will send um, insects, arthropods for identification. And um, when we took a look at this thing, the ticks looked strikingly different from hard ticks. In fact, they don't have like the flat armored appearance that hard ticks do. Um, they kind of look like an overgrown mite or like, a, to me, a tiny miniature dried up raisin. Um, and although uh, we didn't supply a species ID for the NPMA member, we did tell them it was a soft tick when they asked. And then we told them to check into potential bird nests in the structure. Now, armed with the information from this paper, though, uh, we now know that soft ticks can be present in bat colonies, too. Uh, so it's a good idea to inspect for these ticks as well as bat bugs after future bat eviction and exclusion services. The author did reference a paper from last year in which pest control professionals in Kansas were called in to successfully treat another infestation of bat ticks. So treatment wouldn't be impossible and probably wouldn't be very different from what we might do for bat bugs. So the takeaway from this is that um, monitoring and treatment sounds like it'd be a great idea for an add-on service that could be offered uh, along with bat exclusion in the future. That's it. Job. Thank yeah. you, sir. <laughs> Another uh, over five minute summary, but much, much, much closer to five minutes than ours. But uh, this is whew. you're you're getting a lot of long winded summaries today, Nicholas. I apologize, man. Usually, at least one of us is around the three to four minute time frame. We uh, we're putting you through the ringer on this one. <laughs> uh, it's okay. It's okay. They considered just to change it to six minutes. 
Oh, you don't no. want to give us more time. No, this was no like, we're, we're all struggling it. here to even sit through each other's five minutes. I can't even imagine how you're doing. Yeah, we need to challenge ourselves to like shorten them up is what we try to do, but we're just all nerdy to manage to do it most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, Nicholas, did you have any questions for Jim? Well, I, I don't, but I, I just have some questions. Did you know in Alberta there are no rats, no fleas, no ticks, and no fire ants? And uh, two of these topics today are on ticks and fire ants. Well, I, I think I should be terrified of fire ants just to let you know uh, because they just sound ferocious and perhaps it's great to live in the land of the ice cube uh, because we don't really have to worry about these things. So, you know, I, I think it's to your guys' advantage putting things on the table that I am clueless on. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I actually thought, thought about that, Nicholas, in picking the paper that I chose. But given uh, your native range of Australia and the problematic situation with fire ants and their uh, current invasion status in Australia, I thought this may be uh, something that could potentially hit home a little bit for you in that sense. Of course, I'm sure by now you consider both Canada and Australia home equally, but just, uh, you know, so not pandering wow, to the audience I, or anything, but... Uh, you were, like, picking at straws, like, really stretching here. Picking at straws, yeah. one of the most important invasive species management efforts ever in that area is taking yeah. place right now in Australia, currently trying to control the red imported fire ant, which Nicholas now is well-versed on, so... Have you guys ever heard of the bull ant? No. The, the, what, the bullet ant? No, bull, B-U-L-L, ant, bull ant. Bull ant, no. Oh, bull ant, no. When I was a kid living in Australia, a fire ant, not that I've ever seen one, reminds me uh, of a fire ant, a fire bull ant in the sense that and as a boy, you know, you would uh, drag your foot over the top of a bull ant and lift up your heel and that ant would still be alive. And, and then it would just bite you repeatedly, making a wasp sting look like, a mosquito bite, <laughs> and of course, you know, you would always be terrified camping to, you know, step on that mound of bull ants because it's a losing equation, right? <laughs> I am. I cannot wait to go to Australia. I've never been. I'm so excited. But I'm convinced that literally everything is like evolved to murder you there. <laughs> it is. Well, so I was driving down the freeway in Melbourne, and I would have been in my early twenties. And a huntsman spider comes down the inside of the windshield on the sun visor in front of my face. I'm going down the freeway at 110, and this thing is swinging in my face. So what do you do? Well, it was standard vehicles back in the day. I put it in fifth to second to the emergency lane, and there's only one thing that happens when the vehicle deaccelerates like that. It swings in your face. <laughs> uh, oh, I would have died. I would. I would have never. You were. You would have crashed. <laughs> yeah, would Nicholas. Have crashed fun fact: uh, the thing oh. that terrifies Brittany the most on Earth is spiders. So please continue to uh, <laughs> detail this story. Yeah. <laughs> but the funny thing is, you know, it's swinging in your face, and you're like, I don't think it's poisonous, but 
I don't really have time to negotiate. All I know is I probably <laughs> get out of the way. And so, of course, you don't want to hit other vehicles around you, but you just want to get out of the vehicle in a safe and orderly fashion. Just saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Australians, Australia is um, amazing. I've never visited it, but I really would like to someday. But it feels like, you know, pest control is challenging in the United States and in Canada and you know, and I guess in the, in the Western hemisphere or at least, you know, North America, but it's like a whole different ball game in Australia because it feels like the pests can fight back. <laughs> and it's like more of a game of like survival, you know, survival of the fittest as opposed to a uh, pest control where, where, you know, here in North America, it's, it's a little bit more, you know, tilted in our favor. Yeah. The win loss tally is a little bit more even. <laughs> feels like pest control roulette every day you go to work. I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. I think uh, I, this conversation is super fun, but I think we have to get to the inevitable and make you make a decision here, Nicholas. Okay, so I am meant to decide again. Tell me what I'm meant to decide. You were going to be deciding who the winner for today is, and that's all you have to disclose. You do not have to let us know who second and third place are. So basically, out of Jim and Brittany, you don't have to tell who the second and third place is. You just have to identify me, first place winner, what we can call it at that, and everybody goes home happy. All right, so, so what's, the, uh, what's the parameters of a winner? Like who's told the best tale, or what's the deal? That's the best part. It's whatever you want it to be. Completely up to you. Yeah, like if you zoned out because you started thinking about like a movie you watched last night and didn't listen to Jim, then that's your criteria, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Keep talking for 30 seconds here. Yeah, I mean, and it could be like who has the least amount of hair on the podcast would be the clear winner. Um, who has the most facial hair on the podcast could be the clear clear winner. Um, I mean, you know, any what, whatever parameter you want to uh, identify, that's it's completely up to you. Oh boy, maybe maybe you might choose it based on whoever mentioned uh, Canada during their talk. Absolutely, uh, I think I remember that I did that. <laughs> Absolutely, Jim. Absolutely. So the theme today is who's going to eat Vegemite and who isn't. So here we do. Okay, so who, who knows how to spell Vegemite? I clearly don't because I thought you were saying Vegemite, so <laughs> I'm out of the running. <laughs> Vegemite is V-E-G-E-M-I-T-E. That's so, what I was going to say. But yeah, that's exactly it. You beat me to it. Singular and plural all in the same. Okay, this is really high tech of how we get a winner. Okay, so we're going to spell the word uh, Vegemite beginning with Michael. You can say the first letter in the word of Vegemite. Then we go to the second letter, which would be Brittany. And the third letter would be Jim. And we just repeat until we get to the bottom of the word. Do we get it? I get it. You ready? Am I second? Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, E. G E M I T E and Brittany is the winner. (laughs) (laughs) This may be the most scientific approach to identifying a winner for this game we've ever had. It's pure luck (laughs) in this You know, go ahead, Jim. So the the funniest part is that I was really stressed out because 
I didn't quite know how to spell it, even though you just told me how to spell it. I couldn't remember. And I thought it was a spelling test. I thought it was whoever fouled it up was the loser. But lo and behold, it was like eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I gotcha. Right, the mundo. You know, and we were spelling potato. Does potato have an E on the end or not? <laughs> no, you, you spell potato. I, I spell it potato. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this was a pretty solid indication that Nicholas decided that we all three lost equally. And so the only fair way to identify a winner would have to be another way, something other than our, our paper summaries, because that clearly wasn't going to do it. And I also have to say, although I won by chance, that I feel like it's only fair that I try this Australian delicacy. So I'm still willing to take a bite of Vegemite. Right, no worries. I'll bring a jar with me to Pest World. Okay. Perfect. In Boston. That's right. right. Well, this was a ton of fun, uh, Nicholas. I had no idea at the outset how much fun this would be. And uh, we got to, I mean, we certainly ranged, the, ranged a, a wide array of, of topics during this, uh, during this time we had together. But we do appreciate you taking your time out of your, your busy schedule. I know, you know, despite the fact that it's... Uh, you know, cold up in uh, in Alberta where you are. Um, this is like you know, spring is breaking, so you got you're gonna have some uh, you're gonna have some calls today for sure um, with uh, above freezing temperatures. And um, but honestly, I, we know you're busy with not only your your business but also with uh, all the volunteer work that you do that Mike mentioned at the outset. And and for that, we're grateful. For that, um, the industry is grateful, and we're grateful for your time with us today. So. Uh, thanks so much, and we look forward to seeing you again in person soon. Excellent. Thanks very much, guys. I really appreciate being invited on the show, and I look forward to hearing it when it goes live. All right. Well, that's a wrap for another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites podcast. And if you found this information research super interesting, be sure to check out NPMA's Pestology blog at npmapestology.com to take a deeper dive into the research. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the release of another new episode. Thanks for joining us, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. NPMA Bug Bites is the industry's source for the latest in science, news, and pest control research. It's brought to you by the National Pest Management Association. You can find links to the science discussed in this episode as well as technical and business resources, training opportunities, and information about careers in pest control by visiting npmapestworld.org.